Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. So, thank you for being here on time, and I'm apologizing I'm not on time, but uh, it is just a couple minutes after 11, and as I mentioned, we'll close just a little bit early today for my schedule, but, but we have plenty of time to continue talking through John chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, open them to John chapter 10. If you are new with us today, and it's great to see a few new people, hi Sue, hi. and Luther, and we're just so glad you're here. We've been looking through the Gospel of John very slowly. This is a this is a verse by verse Bible study. We try to take it uh, slow enough to consider the history, the context, and and really dig into the well, really the exegesis. That that is what did the Bible say to the people that it was first written to? What did the scriptures mean then? And then the hermeneutics. That's the big word for what does it mean to us today? So we try to consider all of that as we study the scripture. Number one rule of all Bible study. It cannot mean something different today than it did to them then. Okay, that's just the number one rule to always keep in your mind. So, therefore, we must seek to always find the original intent of the scripture. And that forces us to really get into their context and their, their world. Because it's so different from us 2,000 years later. John chapter 10, one of my favorite chapters in this book, is one of those where we had to set it in context when we began this chapter. Now, we have two lessons already in this chapter. If you're new to the Bible study, you can catch up by listening to the podcast. I record all of these, and they're put on a podcast. You can find that podcast at uh, my website, bradreillyministries.com, and just click on the word podcast. And you should be able to see it there. I'm about to launch a totally different website, but the old one is still up. And uh, they'll both be pretty easy to find, whether it's the new one or the old one. But go there, and it'll just show them in descending order. So you can go all the way back to the beginning of the Gospel of John and catch up. Most of them run about an hour. Our discussions here roughly, uh, roughly last about an hour. But the first one, the first lesson, put into context this idea of the shepherd What was the life of a Judean shepherd like? Because Jesus was making that beautiful, he was using the the story of the shepherd and the sheep as an allegory for Christ and his church. And so we began to look into what was the life of the Judean shepherd. Does anybody remember some of the real points that we talked about of what was the life of the Judean shepherd like? Very uh, isolated. He was isolated, out alone in the hillsides all the, almost all the time, usually for overnight. Um, it was a very difficult life. Anybody else remember any points? Subject to danger. Very dangerous occupation, that's right. Subject to danger. And the shepherd was called to lay down his life for the sheep. So Jesus, last week we began noticing Jesus calling himself the good shepherd. Well, good implies that there's bad, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just naturally implied. If you're going to say, well, I'm the good shepherd, there must be bad shepherds. We talked a little bit about what the shepherd is in terms of pastoral ministries. 
the word pastor comes from the Latin word for shepherd. Pastor is a Latin word for shepherd. So we think of our pastors, we're supposed to be, of which I'm one, we're supposed to be shepherds, shepherds of the sheep. But the fact that Jesus is teaching this lesson in John 10 to them about good shepherds, and he even talks about bad shepherds. He talks about people that were like hirelings, people that weren't there to really take care of the sheep, people that weren't there that were going to lay down their lives for the sheep. He called them thieves and wolves and how they come in at different times rather than coming in by the door. The door, of course, had a dual meaning. It was the scriptures, but also the door is Jesus. But then Jesus, the Logos of God, is the eternal word of God. So there's a little bit of a play on words there that we want to always bear in mind. Jesus was teaching him there is no other way into the flock than through himself. We'll hear that again a little differently when we get to chapter 14 when Jesus starts talking about I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Very familiar phrase to some of you. But for now, let's think as we, as we begin today, I'm going to pick up on verse... Uh, we're going to look at verse is it 17, I think, is where I want to start. Maybe 14, we'll go back, and, and, and I think 14 is a good place to pick up. That may have been where I left off, actually. After 13, 14 is the verse where Jesus actually introduces himself as the good shepherd. We're going to talk about that comparison between good and bad. But let me read just a few verses for you. The section I think we can cover today. And this is starting with verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. As the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will heed my voice. So there shall be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon, and he is mad. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the sayings of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let's stop there. I think that's verse 20. So we see Jesus introducing himself here, specifically as the good shepherd, again, and this phrase, uh, he begins to make a, a comparison here. Jesus says, as a good, what qualifies him to be a good shepherd? Because he says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. But then he makes a comparison. And what's his comparison to the fact that he knows his sheep and his sheep know him? He knows his father and his father knows him. Yes, what a powerful comparison. Just like I know my father and my father knows me, so I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Let's stop and think about that for just a little bit. How well does Jesus know the Father? Pretty intimately, because they're part of the Trinity. When we really understand the triune Godhead, three 
persons, but one in being. I mean, Jesus is God. I mean, this is a powerful comparison of perfect knowledge. Jesus has perfect knowledge of the Father. There's nothing about the Father that Jesus doesn't know. There's nothing about the Son that the Father doesn't know. So when we take that comparison and apply it to the sheep, now who are the sheep? Us. Us, hopefully. We're, we're, we're the sheep. We're part of the flock of, of God. And in that comparison, Jesus is saying, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. When I don't have any trouble accepting that Jesus knows all about me, <laughs> and he's my creator, he knows everything about me. I can't hide anything from Jesus, can I? Help me or help him because he knows me too. <laughs> and and, and we, can't, we can't hide anything from him, can we? But how well do we know Jesus? That's the question. How well do we know That's Jesus? That's why we're here. That's a good, good, good answer. Good, good to get to know him more and more. Well, I think that's a good answer. We, we want to study the Bible because the Bible is the written word of Jesus, of God, of his story. But in it, it's also, as the book of Hebrews tells us, it's a living word. Yes. Scriptures, do you, do you understand that? Scripture is a living word. Yes, it is. Um, I, I sometimes, I I. I I yearn for, how do I say this? The Bible is, is such a, a... A Catholic friend once told me, he said, you Protestants, you have your um, sacramentals. Uh, a sacramental to a Catholic is, a, is an object of great... Um, how do I explain it? It's an object of great uh, personal value. It, it kind of reminds them and blesses them when they think about their faith. It could be a holy picture, could be some kind of a little statue in their home, could be a rosary, a set of rosary beads or something. They, they would call that a sacramental. And he said, you Protestants have your sacramentals too. And I said, what, what are you talking about? And he said, your Bible. It's your Bible's your sacramental. Yeah, that's for sure. And I said, aha, you're right. He said, that book is holy to you, isn't it? I said, yes, it is. He said, that book is revered and, and so much so that you, you uh, treat it carefully and lovingly. I said, yes, sir. And I said, you know, I, it was years in my life before I understood that it was okay to actually write in my Bible. As a child, see, as a child, I was taught, I don't know, I wonder if some of you were like this. As a child, our Bible in our home set like on our coffee table or something, and you didn't lay another book on top of the Bible. <laughs> and, and I'm that way too. I'm like you, Jackie. In my office, I'll, I've got like 15 Bibles laying around my desk or my office and everything, and every now and then something gets placed on one, and I'll sit there and I'll find myself, oh, take that off, you know. Uh, why? Is God going to strike me dead for having laid some paper on top of my No, but it's this instinctive Respect. Respect and understanding that this is the holy word of God. This is something. So when we ask the question, how well do we know Jesus? Well, how well do we know the word? Because we don't know the word very well. It's a little difficult to know Jesus really well. Yes. I think every day you can learn something new. Even for somebody that knows a lot of knowledge, can also learn from somebody else. Absolutely. But like, I also believe this is a learning tool before you leave Earth. 
And it's okay to write notes in your Bible. Yes. If that helps you go back to a certain place and study a certain thing more. I agree with you. Absolutely. Took me years to learn that, but I agree with you. There was just something like, oh, I can't write my Bible. Now, now, of course, I scribble all through my Bibles. I'm underlining, highlighting, writing notes and margins. But I agree with you because it's God's tool for us to use and to be able to come back and uh, read it over and over and over again and know. Especially if it was something that really spoke to you spiritually. Put a date in it. Wow, this was a date that God really spoke to me about that. My grandmother died. I, my mother got her Bible, and I told her I wanted that Bible. Mm-hmm. She had read so many scriptures to me mm-hmm. out of that Bible. And picking up her Bible, there was almost as much of her own handwriting in the, <laughs> the you know, the borders of the Bible yeah. as there was of the Word. Yeah, I believe she, it. She wrote. Almost every scripture had some kind of a meaning to her that was yeah. she had wrote in there. And uh, I got that Bible, and I the, I had it for about three days when I had to give it up because my oh. uncle had given her that Bible, yeah. her, her son. So he got it back. And yeah. So he got it back. But just sitting there and reading the, the Word and then reading what Grandma had written out beside it, I, I learned more about the Bible right then and there from Grandma's uh, writings than yeah. I'd ever learned before and I I don't know how many times I've read the Bible through at least a hundred maybe yeah. maybe even two hundred maybe great a great heritage she left you in yes, her notes definitely. there. Yeah absolutely. And so so when we learn to know Jesus, clearly studying scripture is very important. Because it reveals Jesus. But what else is very important in getting to know Jesus? Well praying. There's... Prayer. That's right. So not only scripture but prayer. In what way does prayer help us know Jesus? You're talking to him. Because you're talking to him, that's right. And he talks to us. Right. Meditation or, or just having that quiet time. Yeah, not, meditation. Not, not praying, just sitting and trying to listen to what he has to say to you. Meditation is often listed as a separate spiritual discipline from prayer, but they go hand in hand. I mean, meditation is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is like a hand in glove with prayer. We, we talk a while, we listen a while, we meditate a while. We, probably one of the habits we have as human beings is we talk too much. I know that's certainly one of my problems. I no, talk I too much. <laughs> Glad to know I'm not the only one, Pat. Um, but I heard a, a, a wise minister once say, you know, the problem with prayer is that most of us spend too much time talking and not enough time listening. We have to remind ourselves, God wants to communicate to us. He wants to speak to us in our prayer time. And listening would be added to your list. Listening would be added to the list, that's right. Because, remember, how did Jesus say, when he began talking about this idea of the good shepherd, in this chapter, he said, last week we saw, he said, and he may have reiterated it here. I might have just read it. He reiterates a few things. Yeah, it says in verse uh, 16, and they will heed my voice. I think last week in a previous verse we said, my sheep know my voice. And we talked about the shepherd. And Remember that the real shepherds in the Judean hillsides had that ability to call out to their sheep and their sheep only knew. It was an intimate relationship. They didn't, 
sell their sheep every year for meat. They kept them for wool and many times had sheep for years and years and years. And they were like loving uh, animals to them and they knew their voice intimately. And the sheep wouldn't even follow a foreign shepherd's voice. They were trained, they were nurtured to only follow their shepherd's voice. And they spoke a language, even a special language. The shepherds, that's so unique. There's a special language that shepherds, and no two are alike. When you think about it, there's, it's not like you go to shepherd school and you learn a specific language, to, like yodeling or something, to learn how to call sheep. No, it, it's this intimate, special knowledge and relationship. See what a beautiful picture God is painting for us. Because the language with which God speaks to you and to me and to all of us, it, it transcends words. He speaks to our heart. Sometimes we hear him in a, in a word, maybe, um, but, but sometimes it's an impression. So what we're talking about is a very transcendental relationship with God. Very close, intimate, transcending relationship. That doesn't happen unless you spend a lot of time with God. The older I get, the more I work, the more I regret, the busier that I get, because the busier I get, the less time I think I have to just spend time with God. But yet, that challenges us to always reframe our thinking into what we're doing, everything we're doing, if we're doing it to the Lord, is an act of prayer and is in spending time with God. Now, that's a, that might sound a little different to you, but there is a, there's a sense in which when the Apostle Paul says in Scripture, pray at all times, pray without ceasing. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about being able to be in such a union with God that we actually don't think of doing something separate from him. He's with us while we're doing everything, even those busy tasks. Now, there's a classic book that if you haven't read, put it on your reading list, okay? I'm going to give it to you right now. It's a classic because it was written by a monk in like the 13th century or something like that. I can never remember dates on things, it seems like. But the, the, the book is called Practicing the Presence of God. Practicing the Presence of God by a monk, and his name is Brother Lawrence. So you could Google Brother Lawrence. It's the only thing that's going to come up. Brother Lawrence didn't know he was writing a book. He was a, a monk in a German order of monks, I think maybe the 13, 12 or 1300s. I can't remember exactly. But Brother Lawrence's job, Brother Lawrence was not the head of the order. Brother Lawrence was not, and if you look at the, the order, he wasn't that important in the scheme of things. In fact, most of his duty was in the kitchen peeling potatoes and things. But he kept a journal every day. And that journal of his time is what, when he died, the head of the order, the abbot, is, as he was called, looked through his journal and gave a eulogy. And so most copies of the book actually begin with a eulogy from the abbot at Brother Lawrence's funeral. And that became through the years, published as a book, one of the best-selling books of all time, certainly in, in the top ten, I'm sure, um, for Christians especially. But that book, it, I mean, the, the abbot couldn't believe what he was reading. This man understood that no matter what I'm doing, some menial task or some great 
uh, moment in worship. I'm always in the presence of God. I'm always practicing the presence of God with me. And God is with me, helping me do everything. Well, that's, that's just a beautiful thought right there. I love that. I believe that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he says pray without ceasing. So if you haven't read it, it's not very long. It's usually a thin little book. Um, get it. Read it. You will not be sorry practicing the presence of God. Now, we say all that because we're, we're building a small list here of different ways. And this is just a short list, and I'm sure there are many others. And how can we learn to know Jesus' voice? Because Jesus makes a statement. He says, my sheep know me. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. And so I want to encourage us to be thinking, how well do we know Jesus? Now, we'll never get to know him in his entirety because he's God. And he, he's such a deep subject, and he can always take us deeper and further. But um, a, as we go through this, let's look back to the scripture itself. I mentioned this to you last week. Jesus says in verse 16, at, at the closing of last week's uh, study, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Remember last week we talked about two Greek words that are very, very important. I'll go ahead and write them on the board again. And that is, uh, and it, it's spelled like this, A-U-L-E-S, and it's pronounced owle, like owle, kind of like that. And then this word, poimne, which is kind of like it sounds, poimne. Um, those two Greek words, okay? Jesus uses two, we're, our Bibles are translated into English. And in our English Bibles, in verse 16, you will notice there are two different English words here. Jesus says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. There's the English word fold. I must bring them also, and they will heed my voice. So there shall be one flock. Now there's the English word flock. And one shepherd. Now, that is, those two different English words are both um, those are both Greek words in Scripture. Okay? Aule, poimne. Aule, which is the translated into English, fold. And poimne, which is translated into English as flock. What is Jesus communicating here? He wasn't making a mistake. Our denominations, really. He's saying there is, there is one big Aule. universal, mm -hmm. big universal group. But yet there are little individual groups as well. The alley would be the denominations. And okay. the flock is us as Christian brothers and sisters no matter what as long as we know the Lord. I think that's where this takes us. I really do. I don't believe that Jesus was pre... I don't believe he wants us to have denominations. I mean, I think that the fact that Christianity has been shattered into so much faction is not a good thing. But I think... It was something that God in his providence foresaw and knew that we as humans wouldn't always get along and would have arguments over things. Sure and it's sad that that, that that has happened. And I think to the extent that we can learn and embrace the flock, that's how we have to love other Christians. We cannot be, like, we cannot be anti-Baptist. We cannot be anti-Catholic. We cannot be anti-anything and still be part of the flock. We, we all have different expressions and different, different ways of seeing and interpreting over thousands of years these things. 
But yet there is this unity. And, and this book in the Gospel of John, John writes about this unity. He's starting talking about this flockness, this oneness, this universality of God's people. When we get to John chapter 17, we're going to talk about it some more because Jesus in his priestly prayer starts talking about how they, oh, that they may be one, even as you and I are one, Father, but I, I don't want to get ahead of myself. But, but see, there's, there is this oneness, and I think this is a very important scripture that, that points that out to the, the flock of God. Now, as, as we move through here, I want to spend just a little bit of time on this idea of the good versus the bad. Because I believe one of the things John chapter 10 is teaching us is that the church of Jesus Christ has to be as vulnerable, it's always vulnerable, to attack. And those attacks are not just from the outside. Okay, we see a lot of attacks from the outside in our culture today. It's not fashionable to be Christian in our culture today. It's becoming less fashionable all the time. I'm not sure that it, that's probably a poor choice of words. Probably not supposed to be fashionable to be Christian. Um, but what I mean is it's, it's becoming less and less socially acceptable. I mean, there is an anti-Christian movement taking hold in our American culture today. And we can't deny it. It's just becoming really vis- vivid. Yes. I think over the generations and the decades, and you can go on and on, that people have forgotten that the church is Jesus and originated. Mm-hmm. And now that they make the church Catholic, Christian, you know, mm-hmm. so they forget where the church originated. I think you're right. Not only is the church, not, not only did the church originate with Jesus, it is Jesus. Paul teaches us the church is the body of Christ. We have, for, we have forgotten that so many times. We think of the church as just an organization. Well, it's a mystical organization. It's the body, it's, it's the mystery of the body of Christ. It's not just any old organization of people. It's a holy organization. A holy, perhaps a better word is organism. It's a living, breathing Organism, there's a biological factor there, right? Spiritual biology. <laughs> I don't think that's a real word. It's a real context. Spiritual biology, it's a, it's a living organism. Now, so not only are the attacks, even though we see them today on the Christian uh, faith and movement from the outside, the attacks are going to be from the inside. That's what John 10 is telling us. There are going to be good shepherds and there are going to be bad shepherds. How do we discern a good shepherd from a bad shepherd? We talked a little about it last week, but I want to go deeper with you because I want to give you some other Bible, some Bible references that are, I would say, a good correlating scripture to what we're studying here. And that would be found in the book of Ezekiel. Okay? We talked last week. I gave you a couple of scriptures. If you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to spend a little time in Ezekiel to chapter 34. I'll give you a moment to get there. And remind you that last week I talked about, you know, the fact that even in the book of Genesis, God is described as a shepherd of his people. The idea of a shepherd, God shepherds his people, is all throughout the scriptures. Even in the book of Psalms, many Psalms speak of God as our shepherd. Of course, the 23rd Psalm comes to mind most often. But Ezekiel is in the Old Testament. You'll find it amongst the prophets over there by Isaiah or whatever 
If you really want to get specific, it's on page 1216. <laughs> well, I was close, wasn't I? <laughs> 1203 in your Bible. Um, chapter 34. Ezekiel, of course, was a prophet of God whose prophecies are profound, they're difficult to understand, they're very visionary. It takes a lot of study to understand all the symbolism involved in a lot of Ezekiel's prophecies, but verse chapter 34 is crystal clear. I don't think you can read chapter 34 without understanding what Ezekiel's trying to say. So let's read it together. Okay, this is chapter 34. I'm going to read it out of a totally different version than yours, I'm sure. This is the Greek Septuagint, but it won't be that different. It's an English translation of the Greek Septuagint. Sorry, I'm not going to read it to you in Greek. I can, can do that. Okay, verse, 30, verse 1, chapter 34. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord and Master, O shepherds of Israel who feed themselves, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? Behold, you drink the milk and you clothe yourselves with the wool. You slay the fatlings, but do not feed my sheep. You have not strengthened the weak and the sick you have not revived. The broken you have not bandaged and the misled you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought and the strong you have not prepared for labor. So my sheep were scattered because there were no shepherds. So they became food for all the wild animals of the field. My sheep were scattered in all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the face of the earth and there was no one to seek them or to bring them back. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord and Master, because my sheep became as plunder and as food for all the wild animals of the plain, because there were no shepherds with them, nor did my shepherds search for my sheep, but fed themselves and not my flock. Because of this, O shepherds, thus says the Lord and Master, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I shall require my sheep at their hands. I shall turn them away so they may not shepherd my sheep. The shepherds will not feed them anymore. For I shall deliver my sheep from their mouth, and they shall no longer be as food for them. I'm going to stop there for just a moment. That's ten verses. Wow. Yeah. Uh, when, when you read that, you can't say hardly anything but... He ain't talking about sheep. Wow. <laughs> oh, no. Something is seriously wrong. Now, I want to put that in perspective for you. This is the ancient nation of Israel about to go into the Babylonian captivity. They've already been through half the kingdom. The northern kingdom was taken by the Assyrians uh, before this already. This is a time when we are already centuries and centuries into to a time of apostasy. Israel's worshiping false gods. I mean, there's just all kinds of sin in the people and the lives of Israel. And ultimately... Who is God blaming the leaders. For, for the shape of his people? The leaders of the people. The leaders of the people. The shepherds. The shepherds. 
The shepherds were the leaders of the people. In the study of the Gospel of John, if you remember in the beginning, we talked about who is it John's always talking about. He says, John says, the Jews. He constantly uses the word, the Jews, as if negatively and in a contrast. He's not anti-Semitic. It's not that he hates Jews. He is a Jew. John the writer is a Jew. But he's singling out the leadership of the Jews. Sometimes those might have been Pharisees. Those might have been Sadducees. Might have been priests and Levites. I mean, this is a reality. Anybody who was in leadership. Leadership. Shepherding people. You're leading people. Okay? So, that's a huge indictment. What does it say that he's indicting them for? What's their great sin? What's the great sin of the shepherds of Israel? They didn't feed them. In fact, it's not only that they didn't feed them, they fed themselves first. He said, you took the fatlings and you kept the fat for yourself. You didn't even look for them when they were lost. You didn't even try to heal them when they were sick. You didn't even try to make the strong ones more prepared for their labor. I mean, they didn't do anything. I mean, this is a bleak, bleak commentary on the state of the people of Israel at that time, and God's blaming the shepherds. Fast forward 2,000 years. The Church of Jesus Christ in our culture today, anywhere you see it in shambles, anywhere you see it in great controversy, anywhere you see it breaking apart, anywhere you see it hurting, who's brunt of the fault going to be laid upon? The leaders. The shepherds. The shep- and I take that seriously. Let me tell you what. I've been in pastoral ministries 20 years. And sometimes I look back and I say, well, I had no idea what I was really thinking I was called to do. The weight and the... the uh, well, I can't even find the words to describe to you the awesome spiritual responsibility a pastor, a shepherd, a leader must carry for the sheep. It's not okay for a pastor to say, well, I can't get along with that one. Kick them out of the church. It's not okay. It's, It's not okay. That doesn't work. That example's not in Scripture. We must love them and love them unconditionally, lay down our lives for them, when you start to look at, I mean, we, we really need to come back. And I think the reason I'm hitting on this so hard is because I don't see it a lot of places in our world today. I think we've entered an era of pastoring, if it's probably not a word, pastoring. Um, but I think we've entered an era today where we want CEO pastors. We want CEOs. We want them to know how to run an organization. We want them to know how to pilot a big ship. We want them to know how, I mean, these are all good things to know how to do. Nothing wrong with that, okay? Nothing wrong with having a pastor with business experience at all. I had 20 years in business before I went into pastoral ministries. 18, sorry. But but here's the key. We can't have one without the other. We can't have the business CEO pastor if he's not the true shepherd with the heart of the shepherd. And, and I, I know in so many places, sure, there are many great pastors. Thank the Lord there are many great pastors. Thank the Lord. 
But it's an issue in the church of today. I'm not I'm just talking about Nazarenes here. I'm talking about the church. Okay, Many denominations, all denominations. Um, so, there's the bleakness. And that bleakness is still with us and probably every generation has had to face it. That's why the message of Scripture is timeless. I mean, we're, the context may change a little bit, but it's, the message is, is timeless. Now, let's look at verse 11 through the end of the chapter. Okay? So now that we're sufficiently depressed about the situation. <laughs> yes, Luther. Brad, when you brought this, when you read this scripture, it reminded me of our trip to Israel. Mm. We had an obnoxious amount of Jewish rabbis or whatever they were. You probably know what they were uh-huh. more than me. To me, they were putting on a show. Which ones are you thinking of? Which ones are you thinking of? On the airplane. Oh, on the airplane. Okay, yeah, those were just people. They weren't rabbis. Well, some of them could have been rabbis, but they were Orthodox Jews. Yeah. But they were, to me, they were being obnoxious in blocking the aisles, Uh blocking the bathrooms, Uh all of this with with their prayers and show. Yeah. And I, I heard after I got back. Yeah. That these are diamond dealers, most of them. Oh, some of them might be, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, could be the business that they do. Yeah. They were being, to me, obnoxious. Yeah, well, and I think probably... They were serious about what they were doing. Oh, they were totally serious. And I think probably to you it seemed obnoxious because you were stepping out of your culture into a totally different culture. See, and when we do that, we step out of one culture into another culture, we have to be very careful not to judge that culture against ours. To them, nothing is more important than those prayers. Or offend them. Yeah, yeah. Nothing, nothing is more important. I mean, they're they're going to get up in the middle of the night, and it's time for prayer. And if they're in a different time zone or whatever, it falls in the middle of the night, and they're going to put on their tefillim, which they wrap around their arms, and and their prayer books, and they're going to they're just going to get out in the aisle because they have to bow down. And I mean, these are this is their culture. Okay, this is why they tell you. When you step on the airline on your way to Israel, you're already stepped into Hebrew culture. Okay. So, but we don't judge them, okay, because we know that's their culture. Okay. Now, I think we can even take a note of, how shall I say, uh, encouragement from them because they're that serious about their faith. How serious are we? What are we willing to do? To what extent? I don't, I don't, Say we have to be legalistic. I'm not going to tell you you must pray at 3 in the morning and then 6 in the morning and then 9 in the morning and then noon. I'm not going to tell you that. We're not legalistic. But if your heart is in love with Jesus, now they don't know Christ as Messiah. These are Orthodox Jews. But put it into our context. If our heart is in love with Jesus Christ and we have realized that He is our Savior and that He has redeemed us and that we were lost and now we're found, what does our life do to show it? Besides just go to church once a week or twice a week. What, what, is it, what is our lifestyle? Because for them, you see, that's a lifestyle. And, and, and one of the worst indictments about Christianity is that Christianity is called a religion. You know, I've told you, I've quoted many times Father Alexander Schmemann, who said, Christianity is not a religion. 
It's the end of all religion. Christianity is union with God. All religions are seeking how to get to God. Christianity is union with God. That's a whole other lesson, but let me remind you. So let's listen to verses 11 through the end of the chapter. Well, we'll probably stop at at verse 21st, but... um, So, set your depression on the shelf for a minute and listen to these words. (laughs) For thus says the Lord, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I shall search for my sheep and care for them. As a shepherd seeks his flock on a day when there is darkness and when a cloud separates the sheep, thus I will drive them from every place where they were scattered in the day of cloud and darkness. And I shall bring them out from the Gentiles gather them from the countries and bring them into their land. And I shall feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys and in all the inhabited places of the land. I shall feed them in good pasture and on the high mountain of Israel, and their folds will be there. Interesting, the word folds, okay? There's little groups, different ones. Some are Gentiles, some are Jews, some are whatever, some are others, you know, little folds. Okay, now back to the word. They will lie down, and there they shall rest in good luxury and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I shall feed my sheep and refresh them, and they will know that I am the Lord, thus says the Lord and Master. And I shall seek the lost, bring back the misled, bind up the broken, strengthen the fallen, protect the strong, and feed them with judgment. So as for you, my sheep, thus says the Lord and Master, Behold, I will distinguish between sheep and sheep and between rams and goats. Is it not enough for you that you grazed on the good pasture, that you trampled down the rest of your pasture with your feet and that you drank the clear water but muddied the rest with your feet? Thus my sheep grazed on what you trampled with your feet and drank what you muddied with your water. Now let me stop there and make a comment because 17 through 19 is a little unclear if you don't make this distinction. First 11 through uh, 16, wow, what, what do we hear? I, 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 God is, says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to be your shepherd. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to seek you out. That's beautiful. Now we have hope again. We're not in despair like we were in the first 10 verses. But in verse, then he says in verse 17, so as for you, my sheep, he's speaking to all sheep now, and now the shepherds are still sheep, okay? They're humans just like we are, and they're still God's child, and they're still part of the sheep. So he starts delineating between the shepherd type of sheep, and he calls them rams and goats, basically, okay? That's what he's doing here. The rams and goats are these shepherds that are not taking care of people, and the sheep sheep are the docile people that are not getting cared for. So there's another indictment in verse 18. You know, they grazed on the good pasture and trampled down the rest. They didn't think to let the people graze in the good pasture. You know, they drank first out of the water and muddied the rest of it as they walked on. You know, there's this, this image that they weren't taking care of all the sheep again. But now, let's switch to verse 20. Therefore says the Lord and Master, Behold, I shall distinguish between the strong sheep and the weak sheep. Because you pushed with side and shoulder and butted all the weak ones with your horns and greatly distressed the weak. Therefore, I will save my sheep. They will not be as plunder anymore. And I shall judge between one ram and another. 
And I shall raise up one shepherd over them, and I will tend them, even my servant David. He shall be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And I and David will be the ruler in their midst. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will also make a covenant of peace with David and utterly destroy the evil wild animals from the land. I can't find where you're at. I'm in verse 25. Verse 25. I just started verse 25. I will also make a covenant of peace with David and utterly destroy the wild animals from the land. And they shall dwell in the desert and sleep in the forest. And I will settle them around about my mountain and will give you rain, the rain of blessing. The trees of the plain will also produce their fruit and the earth shall produce her strength. They shall dwell on their land in the hope of peace and know that I am the Lord when I break their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslave them. They shall no longer be as plunder for the nations, nor will the wild animals devour them, but they will dwell in hope and no one shall make them afraid. And I will raise up for them a garden of peace and they shall no longer perish with hunger nor bear the insults of the nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God and they are my people. O house of Israel, says the Lord, you are my sheep and the sheep of my pasture. And I am the Lord your God, says the Lord and Master. What beautiful, beautiful picture of the redemption of God, of redeeming his own sheep. Now, is this fulfilled? This beautiful prophecy that God is going to save his sheep and he's going to lead them and he's going to pastor them and he's going to take care of them and seek them and bind them up. Is this fulfilled? This is a prophecy. Is it fulfilled? Yes. Yes, it's fulfilled. Who's it fulfilled in? Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. God came to earth to be our good shepherd. And Jesus Christ is that God who came to earth to be our good shepherd. And he is taking care of us now. He is leading us now. He is feeding us now. I mean, there's such beautiful symbolism and imagery here. Um, when you come to church and you receive Holy Communion, next time you do that, think about your shepherd feeding you. That's what he's doing. Okay? When you... When you hear a rich sermon and you feel the power of God dwelling within you and calling you to new heights, think about your shepherd feeding you because that's what he's doing. You see? Um, so I, I wanted to bring Ezekiel into the, into the mix because it is a powerful, powerful understanding of this whole idea of shepherds. Why did Jesus make such a big point in John chapter 10 about shepherds and about bad shepherds versus good shepherds and he's the model of the good shepherd. Why? Because that's the model. Ezekiel's already prophesied about it and he's the fulfillment of it. And you can bet that the really learned Pharisees who knew the law, who knew the scripture, had to know the comparison that Jesus was making. They may not have, may have been too hard in their hearts to admit it, but they had to know. And you can see that by the end of this passage. It says here that there is a division among the Jews of these words of Jesus. They're divided. Some are saying, this guy's a madman. He's a lunatic. Well, what would they think? Why would they think that, except that they understood he's connecting himself with Isaiah, with Ezekiel's prophecy? He's calling himself God. He's calling himself the great shepherd that's always been God over Israel. And they think he's a lunatic and a madman. But others are saying, no, he's not. How could he be? Can, he, can a lunatic or a madman heal the blind man's eyes? 
So you see there's people that are beginning to catch on while others are still hard in their hearts. And I think, uh, boy, I have to close because I'm out of time today on this short schedule, but let me leave you with this thought, okay? Let me leave you with this thought. In verse 17 through 18, Jesus talks about, I, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. And I have the power to pick it up again. Okay, no one can say that Jesus Christ was killed by others. He voluntarily allowed himself to be killed. Okay, for our sake. Now, it's that power that proves he's God. He did take up his life again. He was resurrected on the third day. And there are witnesses to prove it. And, and we, we have the witness of the Holy Spirit to prove it. And the fact is, I love this, thought, this quote. I can't quote it exactly, so I won't. I won't it's not word for word. But, but C.S. Lewis, in his great book, Mere Christianity, Mere Christianity, if you haven't read it, said this. He said, some say that Jesus is either a madman or a lunatic on the level of a poached egg. That's the way he talked, you know, or something. He's just a nut. Um, and then some say he's a good teacher. But don't get, no, he says, don't give me this business about him being just a good teacher. Because he's either one or the other. He didn't give us the option. Jesus is either a madman or a lunatic. Or he's God. Not just some good teacher. He didn't give us that option. And that's a butchering of his quote, but that's the, what he meant by it. And that's really what this John is saying here. We, we don't have a choice. Jesus is God. We either look at the evidence and we see that he's God. We know that he's God and we accept that he's God. And we bow down to him and we love him. I'm late now. Okay, let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this session today in which we look deeper at you as our good shepherd. Father, we are all your sheep. We have all strayed from our fold at times in our lives. We are vulnerable. We've all been vulnerable. We are all still vulnerable. We need you, our good shepherd, to help guide us, lead us, feed us, and teach us, strengthen us in every way that we should. And we ask this in all of these things today in the strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.